Welcome to the Reframers Podcast. Arguing with friends and fam about politics is hard. New plan. Let's reframe what it means to discuss and disagree by talking and listening to each other. We're the Reframers. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Reframers. I'm Erin, one of your co-hosts. Hey, everybody. I'm Cassie. We're so happy you're here, and I'm joined with our last and final co-host. Yeah. Hi, everybody. It's Zach. Welcome back. Thanks for listening in this week. What are we talking about today, Erin? Today, we are going to talk about critical race theory, um, which is also being called CRT in general discourse. So you may have heard of this. In fact, you probably have because it's been a really big deal for at least the past year, kind of since last summer. Um, and a little bit even before that, so and through this year. And don't worry, you guys, I am obviously going to ask, what is critical race theory? So if you're like right away, like, this isn't the pod for me, I don't even know what this is, it sounds boring, I promise it's not boring. And our two main co-hosts have done a lot of research, so hopefully they're going to fill us in. Zach, you look nervous. No, I just, I'm just listening. I maybe have resting listening face. Try to work on that. <laughs> I am I am wondering, though, just because you had mentioned that you were a little bit nervous about this conversation, can you just give us some background on how you're feeling right now, kind of entering this? Yeah, so this topic in general had been one that I knew that we would touch on at some point since we started this podcast like 25-ish episodes ago. And it was always one that I was a little hesitant to talk about just because it's so... It's so important and it so affects really our day-to-day life more than I think maybe anything else we've talked about. And that is just race relations and the racial history of America. And I had feelings about this topic before we decided to discuss it this week. And more so than anything else, I don't want to be ignorant on this. And so I have done a fair amount of research and am by no means an expert, but my feelings are complex and are still, and not just feelings, but like my my thought process on this is complex and is still developing. So I am nervous, not necessarily because of having the conversation. I think that that's going to be really valuable and, and hopefully we can work through CRT and the criticisms of CRT and the pros and the cons of it together today and, and maybe just the first step today. But in general, I'm nervous because I know that this is a very personal and sensitive topic, and I don't want to be impersonal or insensitive and want to communicate clearly my conflicting um, thoughts uh, on this because I don't know a solution. And in a lot of things, I feel like I know a solution and this one I don't. So um, I'm still trying to like figure it out and I'm not all the way there yet. So that's why I'm a little bit nervous just because I I don't have all the answers. Yeah. Thanks so much for just naming that. And I think that it's tough with an issue like critical race theory, because we are talking about race relations just by nature of the topic. And um, it's just difficult, I think, to, to do that. Um, And we want to be really respectful and thoughtful about how we do this. And so um, Zach and I have both researched a lot about this topic, and we're kind of just going to try and frame the issue and then discuss how it's been playing out in our society because it is playing out in our society and it's all over the place. And it's good just to be informed about what it is and what's happening with it right now. I appreciate that from both of you. 
And for you, dear listeners, we just, whether this is one of your first times joining us or you're, um, you're a subscriber and a follower, we just want to quickly remind everybody what our goals are here at The Reframers, because I think it's important to keep that in mind, not only here as we're doing business with you, but in a conversational setting, in a setting with friends and family, our goals that we're striving to achieve are to educate ourselves, to be open-minded, to ask questions to make the conversations that we have, whether it's about what happened on Selling Sunset, which I want to talk to you if you want to talk about that, or the Oscars, or politics, world news. We want to make any conversations that we have between friends and family a place where you are not going to be attacked, where you're not going to be called names, stereotyped. We want this to be a safe space. And I appreciate that you guys have done research, but I don't want anyone to think like you can't enter into a conversation and say, I don't necessarily know what we're talking about today and I need to learn because I don't know why this is in the news. It seems like it makes sense this way. Why would anyone disagree with that? Like we want to be a place to kind of model that for you and encourage you to do that in your own lives. So if you haven't yet, please like and follow and subscribe to the Reframers. We're on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. We have an email and we now have a brand new website. So we look forward to connecting with you there. Let's jump in. What is critical race theory? All right. Do you, Zach, do you want to jump in? You want me to just go? <laughs> maybe, maybe because I, I feel like inherently in this conversation, I might be a little bit on the back foot. Let me say what I think it is. And let's, and then you guys can say if my understanding is jives with, with what you guys have. Great. My understanding. And so by the way, a lot of my research has comes from this book here. Um, it's called how to be less stupid about race by Crystal M Fleming. Um, and so this is where I have, gotten the bulk of my knowledge about CRT. The reason I chose this book is because I was in a bookstore and I was trying to find a specific book that would give me a good primer on this topic. And the reviews of this book that I found said, this is a great book to read second after you've read White Fragility. And I have not, I could not find White Fragility. So I, I got this book. As I understand it, CRT, critical race theory, is the legal and socio kind of economic theory that race and racism in the United States is not perpetrated at an individual level, meaning I am racist against an individual while that does happen, but it is a system of white supremacy that has been set up and maintained by the participation of whites in society to further promote the welfare of whites in that society. So legal protections, economic resource collection while putting down minority groups. So this is something that is legal, it's economic, it's basically all the institutions that we take part of are in support of white supremacy. And to be clear, CRT, critical race theory. So we're talking about like, this is a theory that exists. Yes, there's, there's a large body of academic papers that have been written on this topic. I mean, she, this, this author, Crystal Fleming is a, a PhD candidate uh, or not candidate, but like she holds a PhD um, on this topic. So there's a lot of academic writings on this particular topic. So we, we can get into, I think later what people shorthand CRT as in, in like culture and in politics versus what it is in the manner I described. Okay. So I, I wouldn't say I know a ton about this, but I have lots of 
thoughts and some background on it. So I'm just going to go and guys, stop me if uh, you need to jump in. So this, when this first came up in like general society, people kind of yelling about CRT, which just for reference, I'm going to generally refer to it as critical race theory, which is how I learned it. And I feel like even the acronym of CRT is a really politicized word now. And so I'm just going to go ahead and refer to it as critical race theory when I'm talking about the academic legal theory. So the reason that I was confused is that this is a graduate level academic theory, and it's a legal theory. So it's been taught in some law schools. And that's kind of it. And there's a whole bunch of academic, um, like Zach mentioned, academic papers and scholarship about this legal theory. And so when it came up in like conversation, I was super confused because the way I had learned it and I have learned it because um, I was taught it in or it came up in my jurisprudence class in law school and jurisprudence, if anyone doesn't know, is the philosophy of law, like what makes law law. So it's a very technical idea. And I think you generally kind of described it, Zach, and I'm just going to put it down in like a little bit of a a less complex sentence. I think that generally what it is, it's an academic legal theory that provides a framework for studying how the law and society have been influenced by racism. And then there's some tenets that are basic tenets associated with critical race theory. One of them is, and I think this is the big one, the kind that you were touching on, Zach, is that racism is embedded in our legal systems and policies, and it's not just a result of individual bias. And there's also kind of this idea that there's sort of a permanence to racism in these systems, that it exists and it's going to continue to exist. And so it's something that we have to constantly be aware of when we're interacting with these systems. And I mentioned legal it's a legal theory because initially it was focused on how the law works um, and how racism impacts laws and looking at things that are not just okay is this thing a discriminatory law on its face saying right like white people can do something and black people cannot do something that's part of you know our jurisprudence but really what it's looking at is laws that are neutral on their face as it it affects race, but they disproportionately affect minority populations. And that can trickle down to other areas of society. Like a good example is in um, the 1930s, government officials drew lines around areas that were deemed poor financial risks. And those were areas that generally had black inhabitants. And so then banks refused to offer mortgages to black people in those areas. So they couldn't buy houses, right? Like that there's nothing illegal technically about what they did under the law, but the disproportionate impact was all about being disadvantageous to black people. So that's kind of like a general example. And another idea that's associated with this, and I think this is very interesting and it's not been part of this, you know, CRT conversation, it's that gains in legal rights and equality between minority populations and white people are only made when they also benefit white people. So an example of this is, say, during the Cold War, which is in the 1950s and the 60s, it looked bad for the United States to be having all of these issues with race relations and people not having equal treatment um, when the U.S. was fighting 
for democracy in other countries. So they didn't want other countries to be looking at the U.S., who's promising democracy, where we have all of this inequality. And so it was actually advantageous at that time to, you know, have the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 so that we could, you know, move in this direction of having a better perception on a world stage. So that's just one example of that. So that's kind of the definition. And I want to give background um, about Derek Bell, who is generally seen as a father of critical race theory, because I think it really informs what it actually is on the academic legal level. But I'm going to stop right there and see if you guys have any reactions to that. I'll just say just quickly that that generally drives and, and settles with what I have understood. So, you know, thank you for giving it kind of your your legal context. I, I just also want to add that in general, the author um, Fleming talks about how this is, you know, systemic racism and institutional racism. And she makes a distinction between the two. But um, she goes on and says, um, for systemic racism, we're referring to collective practices, representations that disadvantage categories of human beings on the basis of their perceived race. And then for institutional racism, consists of racist ideas and practices embedded within social organizations and institutions. And then she goes on and lists policies, laws, families, education. Whether you realize it or not, racism is systemic, pervasive, and embedded within the core of all our major institutions. Zach, is her book about CRT or just specifically about racism in America? The book is titled How to Be Less Stupid About Race. So she she opens up talking about Starbucks's campaign of Let's Race Together. I don't know if anybody remembers this, but they had this campaign where like if you got your coffee from Starbucks barista, if like some of the cups had a little hashtag on it that was like hashtag race together. And then like you had to have a conversation about racism with your barista if you got the cup. And so she's like, this is a stupid idea about race. And so like on the cover, she's she's has things about like, oh, that's reverse racism and not all white people. And we had a black president. And so I she's trying to. It's not necessarily about CRT and it's not necessarily about like racism in America. It's more of how we as a society, from her point of view, have structured society to be institutionally and systemically racist and and how we can like become and try to get people to be anti-racist and and full disclosure i haven't finished the book yet but um from the introduction where she kind of lays out like her her thesis is that's what the book is about okay thank you our goal here is to reframe so some of the questions that i have for you guys is why are we talking about a legal theory and this very high like phd level graduate level conversation in common conversation. So CRT in the news as a cultural buzzword and trigger. I just typed CRT on Google. I hit news, New York Post, New York among states accused of eyeing COVID relief funds for CRT in schools. Washington Post, Florida reinstates math textbooks after publishers remove woke content. These are just headlines that are just in the last couple of days. Fox News, blue states, Blasted for appalling move to use COVID relief money to fund CRT, a Trojan horse. So there's obviously a lot here and we can get back to this, but I just wanted to bring it up because for anyone listening who's thinking, like, why is why is this very complex and high level theory in all of these news headlines? 
you're not the only one wondering this. And we're going to talk about that, what the difference is between sort of the academic legal theory and then what people mean when they're talking about CRT. I'm going to refer to CRT when I'm talking about what is in the conversation right now. And I'm going to call it critical race theory when I'm talking about the academic legal theory, because I think those are actually two different things. And there is a different definition for CRT and academic critical race theory. I think that the CRT, as it's used by politicians and it's used as like a political football, is shorthand for talking about racism in like schools or in in culture, right? Like it's it's not it's not this huge thing, but it's the idea of at least from the conservative side that that you're teaching basically how to be racist against white people. That's what I see a lot on the conservative side. So you're talking about. Yeah, what what people mean today when they're talking about critical race theory, CRT. Mm-hmm. So like I said, I was super confused when this first came up because I just didn't understand why we were talking about it in K through 12, which by the way, this is how it came up. It was mostly related to education, although caveat on that, during President Trump's presidency, he issued an executive order when he found out about subconscious bias and diversity training that was happening in the federal government. And he issued an executive order to stop government funding for that within the government. That order has since been rescinded by President Biden. But that kind of threw the debate onto this political stage in a way that it wasn't before. And just to be clear, the academic legal theory is not like accepted by all academics or anything Mm -hmm. like that. It's controversial on the academic level. So it's not like it's just a thing that all lawyers believe and all law students learn that this is just the way things are. It's a a legal theory that you discuss and debate on like the academic level. I just want to jump in because you said like, oh, if you like the federal government was prohibiting spending for unconscious bias training, those programs are like the diversity, inclusivity and equality initiatives. So in the corporate world, like if you have received a, a DEI, type program. That's the kind of program that was prohibited by the federal government. I don't know if, if just to clarify for the audience. Yeah, that's super helpful. And just so everyone knows that different kinds of diversity training, they vary greatly. I don't know that there's like one exact kind of mm-hmm. diversity training. And from my understanding, at least there's people who do it or companies, organizations who do it really well. And there's some who do it really poorly. So, because it is a difficult subject, I think it's a hard thing to teach and not everyone does it well. Um, But yeah, Trump heard about this happening in the government. He issued the executive order. And so then it was kind of on people's radar of like, oh, we have this like diversity and unconscious bias training. What does that mean? And it kind of morphed into, oh, we're focusing on all of the like negative things in our history and making white people feel bad about what happened in the past with slavery and teaching them that they're all oppressors and teaching minorities that they're all oppressed. And that's that's kind of been my take from when I see, you know, like primarily Republican politicians talking about CRT. Could you tell I was sitting here writing my next question, which is why wouldn't you want to talk more about racism and why wouldn't you want your educated masses and your people who are going through HR training and whatever to also go through diversity and inclusion and that kind of training? So I was writing that down. Thank you. Glad we're going to talk about that. So this is where this is where my complexity and, and conflict and thought comes from, because um, 
in reading Dr. Fleming's book, as well as just like living and being aware of things that I'm aware of, I think you would have to be very ignorant to deny that there are massive disparities between black people and white people in the United States in, in a variety of things. In her book, she mentions how white people hold a certain like 13 times more income than black people, um, that the difference in incarceration rates, you know, the difference in, in um, black people that make up board members and, you know, all these things in which there are a predominance of white, you know, if we're going to group people in collective, predominance of whites over blacks. And yes, the United States absolutely did have systems in place, concrete, in paper, legal systems in place to keep black people subservient to white people. Slavery, Jim Crow laws, redlining, right? Like there, there's a series of things that were on the books, undeniable, to benefit white people. Now, the problem that I that I come into in my conflict is the explicit systems that were put in place have largely been abolished by this time, right? By 2022, those those systems are no longer on the books from a legal perspective. So my thinking is we're experiencing repercussions today, you know, echoes of those policies in the past, and that just because there are disparities doesn't necessarily mean that those disparities today are due to racism. And so when... Like current, current racism. Racism, right. And so I, I'm having a hard time from the standpoint of looking forward, you know, moving forward as a nation, how to separate or how to come to terms with the fact that, yes, we did have these things in the past, that were set up and they were legitimately institutional to oppress black people. And, and how do we, how do we transition out of that going forward in a way that doesn't demean and undermine all of, all of our nation's history? Because in, in her book, she talks about how, I mean, it, she, she's, she's slamming capital. She's slamming the, the family structure as all of these things, you know, the founding of the country, as all these things are negative. And that's where I think the Republican side, to bring this back to the initial question, why shouldn't we teach these things, is because the Republican, you know, side of this thing is saying, well, if you're going to undermine and, and throw under the bus our founders and capitalism, um, you know, and, and our, our Western society structure, then I don't want this taught to people. And I don't want this to be something that we educate people about because that is fundamentally flawed while, while there are positive. So that's, that's my conflict. I know I'm, I've said a few times, but that's where I'm having a hard time because I see her point. I see like there are discrepancies and I don't know what to do about that. I have a question about that in mm -hmm. terms of, okay, so there's disparities now. If the view is they're not necessarily because of like current modern day racism, are they a result of past racism? I mean, I, I'm a little confused on like what that tie is because mm -hmm. whether it's current or past racism, isn't it still racism? And doesn't that indicate that it's still affecting at least, if not embedded in some of our societal structures? I would say yes. Like I would say that there, I mean, obviously mm -hmm. with, and that's why that's why the first thing I, I my first statement I'm not um, like these statements I had to write down because I had to have something on paper that I had to like 
that I could keep coming back to, to as, mm -hmm. as like, this is an underlying truth for me that there are discrepancies. And so while well, I'm like, okay, well, is the fact that there's discrepancies in wealth and incarceration, are these because of policy or are these because of um, individual, you know, choices or is it because of, you know, the way that we've, you know, we talk sometimes about how tax policy can offer incentives. Like, is it, is it because we're incentivizing different things with, with our culture and with our policy? I don't, I don't know. And so I, I think that, yes, you know, there, there was a point in our history where black people had a very strong family unit and they were earning more on, that might not be right. I need to, to check my fact on that, but there was a period in the fifties, I think like immediately following world war II, where there was Blacks were on this, this black families in America were on this incredible trajectory to like really come to grips and, and be equals in terms of, of earnings and, and those types of things. And somewhere along the history, it got derailed. And so is, is that a result, like I said, of policy, you know, whether it's hangover from Jim Crow and redlining or is it, you know, or is it current policy still that, that is, that is setting the tone or is it truly as, as Dr. Fleming is, is saying, is it truly in all of our institutions and, and we are all oppressors? And it's like that, that doesn't sit right with me as from the individualist standpoint, right? The individual is sovereign. All men are created equal. Like that type of messaging doesn't sit right with me in the fact that what, you know, by me being born and thrust into this world, like, and my skin color by chance, I'm an oppressor. That, that's the part I'm, I'm having a hard time like coming to grips with because I don't want to, if I am like, okay, how can I, how can I change that? What am I doing wrong? I don't want to perpetuate that cycle. And I don't know, I don't know how to come to, to terms and reconcile all of these things. I have so much I'd like to say. I so appreciate how much thought you've put into this. I have it circled on my notes, like reimagine disagreement, reimagine disagreement. Like that is what I'm trying to do here when we have conversations like this, that make me in my gut, like you're my husband. I love you more than most people on the planet. And I'm like, when I hear stuff like that, I have a certain reaction. I feel my concern is that the, I'm going to shift away from you. I'm going to go straight to the, the point rather, which is, I think that a lot of Americans and maybe in particular, like conservative Americans have an idea about bootstraps and that everybody is required to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, that that is the American way, that that is how we were founded, that those are, that is such a strong mm -hmm. value system in our country. And I love that. But I think that a lot of times we don't talk about, I, I don't necessarily see people on the right talking about how not everybody's responsible for like the bootstraps that they were given mm -hmm. or that they might not have bootstraps. Mm -hmm. And this is a metaphor, of course, for like your circumstances in your life are in the case of racism, I think, and in, maybe in this theory, far more impacting on what your life can be and what your opportunities and options mm -hmm. can be than like your own ability to pull yourself up and make something of yourself. It's not to say that it's impossible right. that people don't have huge elements of choice and in, in responsibility, self-responsibility in their own life. But I think that it is hard to hear you and other people say, 
I don't know. I just don't know. I don't think there are systems in place right now. And I mean, yeah, it, it sucks that there are people before me, people before us that put these awful systems in place that disadvantaged huge groups of people and that killed them and enslaved them and yeah. lynched them and hung all these things. Terrible, terrible, regrettable. But like that, we don't have that now. Yeah. And why should I be made to feel bad about something that happened a long time ago? Like everybody has all like they can do whatever they want with their life. I didn't tell like that feels it feels um, revisionist. It feels like we're trying to separate and like we're trying to revert to a version of history that makes us look better and doesn't take responsibility for what we should be doing now. And if if I can be, I mean this gently, but if you truly were looking and saying, I don't know if there's something we're doing right now that we could be doing better, like I want to do that. I feel like those sometimes sound like just words from people and not like real like, cause if you really did want to do better, like we would have training about this. We would talk about it, frankly, in schools. I just want to jump in real quick on the history point. And I feel like this is one of the things that makes it difficult to talk about just even between the right and the left. It feels to me like there's this perception that on the right, that if you are critical of our history or our country at all, mm-hmm. you hate it. Mm-hmm. And that is I think a just really terrible way to think about history. It's not helpful and it's also not true mm-hmm. at all. Like, and I can I can say that personally and just also in in general, right? Like historians are critical of history all the time. That's one of the ways you are a historian. It's called historiography. It's like studying what actually happened and then how people thought about it at the time. You know, we tend to view history as just this series of facts instead of looking at the different things happening and how it was controversial then and how we can think about how it's controversial now and how it affects us now. And that's something I see a lot, especially when you're talking about how we teach race and racism in our history in schools, is this idea that if you criticize our past, you hate America and you're teaching kids to hate America. Mm -hmm. And I just think like on, on a bottom level, like I think that's totally wrong. And you... And it also discourages critical thinking. So that's like one side of it. On the other side of it, I do think that there can be on the left this banging of the drum of we're all bad and we need to recognize it. But then it I don't know that it necessarily results in action on the left either. But it's mm-hmm. these two like very negative forces against each other that doesn't leave a lot of room to actually come together and be like, you know what? Yeah, we had problems in our founding. We have Mm -hmm. problematic founding fathers. We didn't deal with slavery when we created the country. That's a problem. And still be able to say this was totally innovative and crazy that it succeeded. And there was a lot of heart and courage in creating this country. Like, we are not good at holding both of those ideas mm-hmm. because we've siloed ourselves into these polarized states where we can't actually hold both of those ideas. Right. And this is, I'm just using that on the history level because I think it's easier to talk about that than to talk about like current day systematic mm-hmm. racism. But I think that's the root of it, that we really can't just be critical thinkers on both sides because we're mm-hmm. stuck in these camps. It's such a good point. The left, I see all the time, wants to burn it all down and start over, and nothing is worth Mm -hmm. saving. And this is, of course, a sweeping generalization, 
but the right wants to keep everything and pretend everything is great as it is. And it is really hard to meet in the middle when people feel that way. Okay. So I just want to say, like, I think that the example of exactly this is Black Lives Matter and the reaction to it, which is largely CRT, let's not teach this stuff in schools. I think that's a really good example of, okay, here's the, like, our system has totally failed, burn it down, or let's ignore, like, all the problems in our history and not teach about racism. I think those are, like, polar extremes of examples of exactly how these philosophies are playing out in our country right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think that, that the history portion of it is correct. And and that's why I think I'm I'm struggling with this this concept and how how I should feel about it. Because on the one hand, I I do idolize and greatly revere our founding fathers. I think that they were, I mean, truly visionaries. And and I've said for years that yes, while they did allow for a system of racism to perpetuate in the United States. And, you know, many of them did own slaves. The inherent mind blank of Thomas Jefferson writing the words that all men are created equal while being a slave owner is is enough to really like undo you. Like like how it it he really encapsulates this struggle that we're having 200 plus years later of h- how can both of these things exist at the same time? And I think that that's what's difficult for me because from the history perspective, I know that we are not unique. I know that we are not unique in our badness. There's been slavery since the dawn of man. There's been religious slavery. There's been cultural slavery, ethnic slavery, class slavery. And so that is not a unique institution to the United States. It's, you know, people from all over the world. I don't think I need to say more on that. But what was unique to us is that we, that we I don't take any credit, the founders created a system in which they envisioned a world where all men are created equal, even if they weren't at the time. And they did create institutions, literally create institutions that allowed for the perpetuation of the oppression of minorities. So how is it that this is a, like, how, how, as you said, Aaron, how do you hold those two things together at the same time? And just so people don't think that I'm like on the fully Trump train and, um, you know, Ron DeSantis, you know, we'll, CRT has no place. Like there, there's some prominent people that are black that have had ideas that I've I have listened to. Like I'm not just getting these ideas from, you know, white middle class men uh, or upper class men that, that have benefited from this. Um, you know, if, if people are curious read, uh, listen to um, John McWhorter. He is the next book that I'm going to read. It's called Woke Racism. And um, he's actually a liberal. He's never voted Republican in his life. And the idea of the book is, well, from reading the jacket is that, in fact, that the talk we have about race today in the United States, I think reacting to CRT is actually um, disadvantaging Black people. It's, It's helping frame race in a negative light that sets them up to be more victims than empowering them to succeed. So I, I can't speak more on hit on that, but I, I've heard a, a lecture or a, a talk that he gave. So John McCorder is one. Thomas Sowell, the economist, is another one that has talked about this. Larry Elder is another one. Um, there's somebody else I'm, I'm forgetting at the moment, but there's a few folks that have discussed similar ideas. So I'm I'm truly struggling. I my I hope that my words aren't empty. And when I say like 
I want to find a solution to this because I don't know what a solution is. I don't like when when Dr. Fleming bashes capitalism and, and the family structure. Like, I don't understand how capitalism is to blame for systemic racism. Like, capitalism is a free exchange of goods and services, you know, that both parties find beneficial. Um, like, I don't see how that is inherently racist, but it gets thrown into the pot. So... Yeah, but even so, even capitalism though is impacted by where you are socioeconomically, which could be impacted by your race potentially. So, you know, it's I think it's a similar idea of the bootstraps and where we mm -hmm. start. The idea of do we all have equal opportunity? And I think that's how that plays into capitalism, at least from my perspective. So that's so okay. So I'm glad that you you brought up equality of opportunity, because I am 100% on board with equality of opportunity. I think that that is fundamental. Like we don't have a free society unless there is a equality of opportunity. I think that that's super vital. But this is where I, I, I have like, the, then my econ brain kicks in and I say, okay, how do we as a society guarantee or get as close as we can to guaranteeing equality of opportunity for everyone? And I don't know how you do that without absolutely trampling on and infringing on the rights of millions of other people. Like, I don't, I don't know how to do that. Can you explain what you mean? Okay, sure. I can try. If, if we're going to have true equality of opportunity, that means that everybody should, I mean, it, it's, it starts to bend a lot and look a lot like socialism. If we're going to have everybody be equal, how you can't have millionaires, you can't have billionaires. Everybody has to live in a similar type of house. Everybody has to have a similar, um, you know, you know, maybe when you're born, everybody gets this much money. Um, where, how do we level the playing field in a way that doesn't impose and, and literally take the property from millions of people. And so this is the, this is what it comes down to for me is that it, now it's morphed from CRT into what is the sovereign right of the individual compared to what is the good of the collective? Yeah, it's really interesting that you bring that up. And I think it does tend to lean more to social programs that could even the playing field. So like for me, what I think of is um, education, you mm -hmm. know, making sure that education is just equal across the board, which is not true right now. And that's a very difficult problem to solve. And obviously, this has a lot to do with the debate on CRT right now anyways. Mm -hmm. um, making higher education affordable to everyone. That would be a big deal as far as like helping equality of opportunity, I mm -hmm. think. Um, I think that healthcare is another one. You know, it's it, sh it shouldn't be devastating for one person if they break their leg financially mm -hmm. and not devastating for another person financially. I think those are all aspects in our system that affect equality of opportunity. And that's like almost strictly socioeconomic. Like that's not even talking about race, right? Although if you do look at the, the numbers, addressing socioeconomic inequality also largely addresses racial inequality. And this is like one of my big issues, actually. I'm all about dealing with socioeconomic inequality because mm -hmm. I think that it really goes to this equality of opportunity issue. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think we're getting, this is super interesting. I think we're getting like kind of far out though into like how this spins sure. out in different directions. I would be interested in, let me know if you guys want to do this, like bringing it back to what's going on with CRT right now 
in the news because it's all related to schools. And we don't we don't have to do that, but I think that would be interesting because that's where all the current events are. I totally agree. I think we should zoom in a little bit. Why are we talking about CRT, critical race theory, so much in the context of schools right now, so much that it's in the news pretty much daily? So should CRT be taught in schools is kind of the big question that I'm hearing. And I'm getting the sense that it's bigger and smaller than that. So what are your thoughts on this? Can we can we say what schools like kindergarten, you know, like, okay. like what, what no, are we talking about? That's a really good question. I think the questions have been about K-12 regular public yep. schools, not higher education. Okay. Yeah, largely not higher education. Most of the laws that are going on right now, which I do want to talk about, are in K, are targeting the K through 12 space. And from what I've seen, they're all public schools and public charter schools. And I think it's because the laws probably wouldn't apply to private schools. Right away, I have just written down, and Aaron kind of mentioned this, the state difference between schools and curriculums and just districts and all of this. Like, it seems crazy to me that we're even talking about this because I mean, if you just look like at a workbook from a Texas school or an Indiana school or a New York school, what we're all learning in different grades, it's always been crazy. My mom's an educator. She's been an elementary school educator for years. I know Aaron's dad is an educator. On its face, the conversation in politics about what's taught in schools across the country already seems inherently like a weird conversation to have because it so varies. It varies so much. And the standards are super, like California has super hard standards. So it's hard for students to like pass all the tests and the state. I mean, it just seems crazy to me that we could even talk about this because, and I think Zach, state differences, like states are able to run these things how they want to run them. I mean, It's so interesting. Yes, but no, right? Like yes, but no, right? We yes, have a board no. of ed- we have a board of education that like sets the standard of what the curriculum is for each grade level. So I don't know, like I'm not an expert in terms of of how the interaction between the state education boards and the federal board of education is, but I know that like nationally there is a certain standard. I don't maybe it's up to the states on how they like teach the curriculum. Um, I'm not sure, but it, like theoretically there is a a one authority in terms of who public schools like get their their curriculum from right and i think it's my impression is that it's a little bit broader like there's sort of big big standards that you have to meet and then there's a lot of variability and you can tell that that's true just state to state and even county to county within the states and my impression is that school boards have a lot of control over the curriculum and which is why so many of these debates have been happening in school board meetings and Teaching has been, and curriculum has been controversial for a long time, actually. This isn't the first time that it's come up. Um, Debates over textbooks go back years, Mm -hmm. right? On like which textbooks we're using, are they good enough? What do they teach? Um, But it's sort of, there's a lightning rod in it right now. And it has this crazy like spotlight that I don't think existed as much in the past. And I think there's a couple of reasons for this. And I'm talking particularly about K through 12 education, I think in large part, the issues with CRT in schools were a reaction to George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020, because you just didn't see the conversation about this before that. Um, So the year after that, in the summer, Fox News mentioned CRT almost a thousand times in each of the month of June and July, like almost a thousand times in June, almost a thousand times in July, like 
it just got blown up. And Fox News has really been the um, platform, or I guess the, the news that's really talked about this. It's in other conservative media, but they were like the big one that really got it onto the stage um, in a way that made people aware of it. So I think that kind of happened. Parents saw that who, who you know were watching Fox News. And then there was sort of this renewed interest in school boards and in the power of parents to actually make changes in schools because of COVID. So you had COVID happening and schools closing, parents getting really involved because they wanted schools to be open. You know, there's all the protests on mass and vaccination. And they saw saw the curriculum in person, right? Like, because now their kids are being homeschooled. So they got to see literally from their kid's computer, if they were home as well, what was being taught. Exactly. And so there's all of these sort of new issues related to it because parents now have this power that maybe they didn't totally realize that they had and they're able to see the curriculum. And so a lot of the protests that happened at school board meetings, which happened a lot between like 2020 and 2021, there were like crazy things happening at school board meetings, like even violence in some cases, lots of yelling and screaming. There was, there's a really like famous one that happened in Loudoun County in Virginia where there's a mm-hmm. ton of screaming and yelling and actually ended early because they couldn't like deal with the crowd and one person was arrested. So it just like, this didn't happen in school board meetings the, the way it has mm-hmm. in the last like two years. And so a lot of it was COVID and then CRT kind of got swept up into that. And now that COVID, I think is, you know, schools are mostly open. Most of them don't have masks now. Now CRT is like the school issue and parents are empowered because of how they were able to deal with COVID and school boards. Mm -hmm. And, and as, as I think something that added fuel to the fire of this CRT backlash on the right is that after some of these local uh, school board education meetings, Biden's DOJ, I think, issued a memorandum saying that if parents are objecting to curriculum in school boards, they should be labeled as domestic terrorists. And so that came out and was not well received on the right. And I think... What? Yeah. So um, I think it was the the DOJ um, issued this memorandum saying that, that if you were a parent objecting or standing up in the school meetings that, that you could potentially end up like on a list as like a domestic terrorist. So that I think added fuel to the fire of the conservative side saying, you know, from this conservative, you know, Republican standpoint, we're parents that are objecting to what's happening in our, our children's curriculum. We should have a say in what we're being taught. And Virginia was really the battleground for a lot of this stuff. And then the administration went ahead and, and issued that memo and it kind of re it just solidified and, and, and reconfirmed that, Oh, this administration or this ideology is like against us and was not very well received. Wow. I didn't know that. Sorry. I just have to look this up like right now because I, that I, I had not heard of that and it mm-hmm. sounds like really over the top to me. So I'm just gonna, I'm sorry, I need to look this like right now. Okay. It's because the letter, this is factcheck.org. It says the letter from the National School Boards Association was a letter to Merrick Garland. So it doesn't sound like it came from the government, but 
It argued that some violent threats against school officials could be the equivalent to a form of domestic terrorism. That feels a little bit mm, like a better reaction. Because that sounds <laughs> that sounds really different than saying, "Oh, you disagree with this idea, so you're a domestic terrorist." I, I to me, it sounds like they're talking about violent threats against school board members, which was happening. There were school board members who literally mm-hmm. got death threats. And so, yeah, if you're someone who's receiving death threats and you're sending the death threats, I could see you being labeled a domestic, a domestic terrorist. That's totally different than kind of what you're saying. We love a fact check. I thought it was from, like, it was a, a memo from the government. Sorry, I, I see it. I see it right now. So Garland received this memo from okay. the National School Board uh, Division. What's Garland or who is Garland? Mayor Garland is the um, attorney general. And then in response, because they received this memo, they they issued a press release about it. So that's probably what it is because it is related okay. to the DOJ. And in that, it said that they are directing all of these government organizations, this is the language, to address threats against school administrators, board members, teachers, and staff. Mm. Okay. So it does sound like the DOJ was involved and had this memo saying, you know, we're going to address these issues. Sounds to me like it was limited to those threats, which would make sense on a DOJ level because it just really doesn't make sense that they would say, oh, you're like exercising your right to share your opinion. And so we're going to label you a terrorist. Mm -hmm. Well, then I'll say that that at least that was used to stoke the fires of the of the backlash. Yeah, and I'm sorry. I like I want to I want to be I want to I want to be helpful in this conversation, but I don't like the phrasing of was used because it's passive voice and it was specifically conservative political pundits and Republican lawmakers who used that language and it sounds to me like twisted it to really rile people up and that doesn't feel honest. Sure, I mean that's fair. Yeah. So, but anyways, all of this happens, right? And people start kind of freaking out about CRT in schools. And that happened all of last year and now there's practical implications of that in these various states. So, I have a statistic here. Since January 2021, so a little more than a year ago, 42 states had introduced bills or taken other steps to restrict the teaching of critical race theory or limit how teachers can discuss racism and sexism. And that's actually another part of this that I want to mention is that like that Loudoun County uh, meeting that got so out of control actually was started um, because the school had, I think it was the school board has had initiated like transgender pronouns they wanted to like include that in um requirements and so that was the source of the issue in that meeting and then crt was part of the protesting um but a lot of these debates with crt and the school boards are overlapping with ideas about like how we teach transgender ideas to kids and also sexism and how we teach sex so there's all of these like divisive topics, which some of the laws have been addressing. They don't actually say CRT. They say divisive topics, which is really broad and not like super helpful. But it's kind of these three things of like racism, sexism, and like transgender. Well, I mean, it's a a cornerstone of 
critical race theory, the actual thing is that it's not just white supremacy, but it's white male supremacy and it's white cis male supremacy. And that basically all, all the structures of society are established to promote the welfare and the well-being of people that set them up, which when they, as the author claims were set up, was the only people that could do anything were middle class or upper middle class, like white males. So it's really interesting. I like don't think of it like as far as Derek Bell, you know, the founder of it. I don't think of the academic theory of critical race theory as being that male centric. But mm-hmm. at least for for him, Derek Bell, that was definitely in his ideas and how he lived his life. He resigned from two different law schools in protest wow. because they wouldn't hire women of color. One was the University of Oregon. The school had bypassed two or two different candidates for a position um had said that they 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 rejected like the offer and there was a third candidate who was an asian woman they wouldn't offer it to her the other two candidates were white men and then Derek bell was a professor at harvard actually the first black tenure professor at harvard and he i don't actually don't think he resigned he took an unpaid leave of absence um as a protest to Harvard not hiring uh, women of color, specifically black women. So it is that is interesting. I don't think of it that way, but I think you're right. It is maybe not critical race theory specifically, but all of these ideas are wrapped up in white male, cis male supremacy. Oh, very much so. Yeah. I mean, she she makes it very clear in the beginning that this is not just a, a racial thing, but, you know, and this gets into, and we don't need to get into all of, all of it, but it gets into like intersectionality that basically in terms of of society it's not just based off of like your race but there's an intersection of factors that that make up you as as um belonging to different collective groups so are you you know what's your race what's your sexual orientation what's your ethnicity what's your religion and like certain groups if you are more or less um situated on the on the power like structure so like white male you know straight white males are the top of the power structure. So they are the oppressors of everyone. But then like towards the bottom, like as you go down, then you have, okay, well, if you're like a gay white male, like you have more privilege and more power than let's say um, like a gay black male, right? So it's it's this intersectionality discussion that is very wrapped up, I think, in in at least from, again, from her perspective and, and from her book, what is critical race theory? That it's not just the structure, but it's also who occupies the positions on the power ladder. Yeah. And I just have to mention here for anyone who wants a little tidbit, um, Kimberly Crenshaw is one of the big critical race theory scholars, and she was big in this intersectionality movement. And I just, you know, I feel like you can't talk about the academic theory without talking about her because she was very influential in the movement. And she really wrote about She's a she's a um, black woman, I think, or she's definitely a woman of color. But um, she really wrote about this idea of the intersection of, you know, race, gender, sexual orientation, all of these things. That's so interesting. I haven't I hadn't been introduced to that word until a few years ago. Maybe I share that with a few other people. But I started to see on pages that I follow a couple of years ago, things like if your feminism isn't intersectional, then it isn't feminism. And I was like, oh, what is this? What are people talking about? And they were talking about like, if you're for the white woman having as many rights as white men, but you're not 
out there for the black woman and the transgender woman and like the gay woman and their rights and their equality, then you're not doing enough. And that's not feminism. Feminism is inclusive of everybody being able to be more equal. And I remember being like, oh my God, feminism has gone too far. Like even we're do even being feminist badly, like what is happening? Again, this is a couple of years ago. And I usually try to like let those thoughts enter my brain and sit with them for a minute and wash over me and be like, why do I feel weird about that? Why do I feel like bad or targeted by that? Like I'm a feminist. I believe that women should have equal rights. Why can't that be enough? Because as I have sat with it, because I'm in a position of privilege and it makes me feel like, hey, I've had my own hard times and I've had my own stuff that I've had to get through and sort out and, and I've been oppressed in these ways. And like, just because I'm not as oppressed as some of these people doesn't mean that I haven't had it bad. And it's not my responsibility to deal with all those other people. who. And this became this whole thought. And I gained a lot of empathy through this experience of what it might be like to be. I live in such a world of privilege. And I just I think over the past few years talking about our privilege in society, it's become more of a cultural conversation piece than I think it ever was. And and that's been really cool in a lot of ways. That's been really valuable. And I think for me that that, so my last question on here is like, how should we talk about race in school? I think it's the same as how we should talk about gender and sexual orientation. And I just, I feel like any conversations that stand to eliminate past wrongs and places where we should and could learn from who we used to be as a as a nation or as a group of people. I think any conversations that shy away from those things and are scared of those things in an effort to make us look better, make us look worse. And I think that we should talk about all of it and we should talk about it from a lot of different sides. And I value now knowing like that there are things that I didn't know about being a feminist, that I didn't know what intersectionality meant and that my voice and my impact mattered in those ways. I would just like to see more people on the conservative side not feel scared of having these conversations and of teaching children to like be critical thinkers and to draw their own like I, I'm being general, but I feel like I see a lot of people on the conservative side say like, I've done my research or I'm going to draw my own conclusions. I'm a, I'm a critical thinker. And I think that that's really valuable. I just, I feel concerned that that isn't based in fact, that they don't have enough information, that they weren't taught to be open and open-minded and critical thinkers about all the same things. And I would love to just see the next generation learn how to do that in school by getting all the information in a more unbiased way, not in a, a filtered, watered down way so that they actually can be better than us. I just am disappointed when people feel like that feels progressive, like that's progressive, right? That's liberal. That's where I feel very attracted and locked into being a progressive because that that's what I want. I want progress. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't disagree with the sentiment, but frankly, like I think when people say like, oh, I've done my research, I think that they're like most of the time probably lying. Like no matter if you're conservative or liberal, I mean, how many people have bought a book like this? I know a lot of people read White Fragility after you know, the George Floyd incident, um, where he was, where he was murdered. Um, but like, I just, I don't think that, that it's realistic. And this is, and this is my, my cynicism. Like, I don't think it's realistic for us to have an unbiased teaching of slavery in the country. Like, I think there has to be 
like there's going to be some bias because we're not like you're leaving it up to the educator to teach it. And I think every educator is going to have bias. Like that's really hard. And, and I, I, I think we should talk about race. Like, I don't, I, I don't think that banning talking about race and racism in schools or, you know, making that part of the curriculum is, is the answer. Like the way that we repeat mistakes and like stay stuck in our, in our limitations is by not educating ourselves on like the sins and the evils of our, in our past. And so like, we absolutely should have discussions and frank discussions, which is why I've been struggling so much because the founding fathers did set up the institutions that, that we, you know, benefit from. And some people benefit more from those institutions today than others. And that's not fair, but the box is open and what do we do about it? And I don't know. And so like talking about it makes it better. Yes. But also like the institutions are still in place and people are still seeking loans and people are still being arrested. So what's that's the, but that's the point. You just said the institutions are still in place and a lot of people don't agree. A lot of people feel fair. Like this is, I think the point, the cornerstone of the argument is that people feel like critical race theory argues that there are current systems in place that deeply impact and decide the way that people of color move through the world and and that it keeps them at a disadvantage and it keeps those disparities in place and there are people who do not believe that that is true lots of people lots of people lots of people mm -hmm. so the path i mean we're back at the beginning the path forward of finding a solution when one person thinks that there isn't that this problem right. doesn't exist and one person thinks that it does it's, I mean, we're obviously not going to solve it in an hour podcast, but like, this is the problem. That's the problem I've been struggling with because like I said, like, I know that, like I've said a few times now, like the, the systems are set up. Like we didn't suddenly when, you know, we abolished slavery or when we abolished, uh, you know, passed the Civil Rights Act, like we didn't suddenly like change our whole system of legal being, but, um, you know, in economics and, you know, all of the, the things that, that are to blame for our situation, so like, obviously the systems were, were set up, of course, but the answer I, I, you know, and maybe, maybe like I said, I haven't finished the book, but maybe the answer is in here somewhere and, and I haven't gotten there yet, but like, I don't think the answer is tearing down the systems because the systems like are the, I think in my opinion, have allowed for the most progress, truly progress forward from any other system in the world. And so I think that that deserves a certain amount of respect but I acknowledge that there are inconsistencies and disparities and discrepancies. And how do you reconcile those two? Can I just point something out about what you said? Because it sounds like it's, we tear everything down or we're kind of like at a loss and we're just like moving forward. And I don't, I don't think that's exactly like how you framed it, but I kind of heard that a little bit on, yeah, we just like give up on everything or, or we just like kind of move forward and figure out some other solution. Like, I don't think that that is, has to be the choice like at all. And maybe that is a message that Republicans are hearing. Cause like, that's not a message that I feel like I hear of, we just need to like tear everything down. But, I, you know, I don't have the same, like, media influence, right? We were just talking about algorithms this morning on, like, right. what actually shows up, you know, how we think about this. And 
maybe that's like in, you know, that, that those ideas are in the book that you're reading. Like, I don't know. But for me, I'm like, I think that there are actual practical ways that we can try and be better. And I think one of the reasons this is a big deal in schools is that a lot of it does have to do with education and how we talk and think about it. And this has been one of the big issues with the schools is that, you know, parents don't want their kids to, a lot of parents don't want their kids to be talking about these issues in schools, particularly things like the Black Lives Matter protests and George Floyd, but kids are smart and they're seeing these things happen. So just because you don't have them talk about it in schools doesn't mean that they're not seeing it. And I think providing a framework for how we can approach it, kind of like what we're doing right now, and being able to like critically think and enter the conversation, when you shut that down, I mean, we're going back to square zero. And yeah. that's kind of what I see happening, at least in the schools right now. That just reminded me of something that I saw going around in 2020 and 2021 online. It goes something like white parents discussing how and when to talk about race with your kids shows your privilege because black parents and parents of color have to talk about this with their kids from a very young age because the world that they live in there are things that they need to know about not wearing their hoodies up and looking suspicious in certain areas or like that they're gonna have to work after school even though the kids at their school are not like their world they move through being different and being different because maybe of their race and their socioeconomic class and the opportunities that they've been afforded this person was pointing out that the privilege of not having to talk about that until you feel like you want to talk about it with your kids Mm -hmm. is is a privilege and one of the big things that a lot of these laws are targeting is the idea of privilege so that that word and talking about specifically white privilege is actually in the text of a lot of these proposed laws saying you're not allowed to talk specifically about privilege, you know? And I think like that's, it's interesting because I I went and read some of these laws. There's actually a pretty good resource. It's on Edweek. The article is a little bit biased, but it has a really good list to all of the, like the text of the laws. So I read some of them. Some of them are like really broad and they're like, you're not going to teach kids that they're oppressors or that they're the oppressed. To be honest, like, I actually think that that's fine. You know, framing it that way, framing people as oppressors or oppressed, is that super helpful? Like, I don't really think so. But talking about the idea of privilege and what your privilege is and just being critical of that in yourself, I think that can be really valuable. And I think that there's another thing that's just really missing from this debate, especially from white people, and that's just an element of humility. You know, we are not good at listening, I think, and recognizing that it's not our experience. And Mm -hmm. I think that if we could be more humble about it, entering into these conversations, that could also be helpful. Yeah. If you're sitting there deciding what, whether this is a school board decision or a federal decision, the lawmakers, I'm not sure whose job it is, but if I'm the person or people sitting there being like, this is what should or should not be taught in schools. Some concepts come to mind. I think that's a really interesting concept, like not talking to kids about how they are oppressors or like the group of people that they come from is oppressors. I think that is important. I think that there's a certain level of emotional um, and intellectual maturity that you couldn't. I mean, how could you do that reasonably? Sit down and talk with any kid. Try a five-year-old, then try a 10-year-old, then try a 15-year-old. Like, who can hear your group of people is an oppressor and not like... Either they're not going to understand it or that like sets you off on a really tough foot to like be a good 
mindful, critical thinker moving through the world with grace and a desire to do better. I don't necessarily think the word oppressor is the right word. I do, however, think that privilege is a good word. I think that privilege in and of itself is a non-emotional word. It is just the existence of more opportunity and availability and access. Why wouldn't it be valuable to talk about like in history and sometimes to this day, like some people have more opportunities and you could talk to kids about like, okay, some people who run faster are maybe going to be better for the soccer team. That's like a privilege or I don't, I, like, I feel like you could put it in terms that kids could understand. Like this is something to look out for in your, in yourself, in the world, in your school. They could understand that. And then if they could be trained in that way to be on the lookout for it, wouldn't they be better citizens? Like, how is that? I don't think it's realistic to say that there's no way to teach that successfully. I think you absolutely could. What are you thinking about, Zach? You look very deep in thought. Yeah. um, Again, it's coming back. I mean, my, my thing is that you're leaving it up to, at the end of the day, not leaving it up to, but at the end of the day, it's up to the educator to teach this. And how do you ensure that the curriculum is set up in a way that that minimizes the amount of personal bias the educator can introduce into this conversation? Because like, I, I completely agree. I think you have to acknowledge the past. I think you have to acknowledge the present and the situation that, that exists in the present day. And, you know, talking about privileges, I think, you know, it's a concept I wasn't really aware of until after graduating from college. And so like, it was just starting, I think, when we were in school, but it's obviously a a way more prevalent conversation now. So yeah, like there is privilege, but I think, and maybe this is again, a symptom of the types of, of media and information I'm receiving. But I think when people, my, my emotional reaction, when I hear privilege and that because I am you know, the one that sits atop of the power structure, um, given my complexion and my biology, that I have more privilege than other people. And that that's morally bad. That that like, there's, I think that there oftentimes is a is a subconscious or subliminal um, value judgment or morality assessment that's done uh, um, associated with privilege. And so while I totally agree with you saying, oppressor is not the right word, because I totally agree, how are you going to tell a five-year-old that they're an oppressor? Like that's, that's the reaction where I will say, I absolutely don't support that. I just don't. Um, but even the conversation about privilege and saying, well, this half of the class, the white half has had more privilege than this half, the minority mixed class. Like, you know, if, if you're having that kind of conversation, you know, maybe five is too young. Okay. It's kindergarten. Like their attention span is that of a goldfish. But you, you see kind of the point I'm illustrating is even talking about privilege, I think, carries with it a certain connotation of morality. And that's, again, I come back to what I said earlier about the individual, because I very strongly believe in in the, the sovereignty and the rights of the individual and people should be assessed at that level. That is the correct level of analysis to evaluate somebody on, not their group. You know, it's the it's the fundamental one. And then it can be group and then it can be whatever. So I just, I, I totally agree. We, we can't ignore our, our history and, and just pretend it doesn't exist. And these problems are not problems anymore. That's why I'm so in anguish about this discussion is because I do acknowledge that there are problems that are persisting into our society today. And the fact that we live in a free country, but we lock up like a huge percentage of our black population is honestly, it, it, it's a, 
it's a farce. Like it, it makes us really underachieve the goals that were set out for us. And, and that's, I think, despicable. So I acknowledge that there's issues, but the two things are incongruent in my, in my thought process of the individual that is five years old or 10 years old has not done anything to contribute to the society in which they were forced to be in. And when you say that they have more privilege and are morally inferior to the person who has less privilege, how does that not put them at a disadvantage in opportunity? And it's, you know, then you say, okay, well, black people have less than Hispanic people. And, and it's like, it's just, it gets so messy. And I, I, that's what I'm thinking about. That is honestly so illuminating to me, like just so illuminating. And it makes sense to me more than anything else you've said so far, like where the issue is in your head on this debate. And be, especially because I feel like, you're a person you care a lot about morality and like good right and wrong like good and evil like it totally makes sense to me that this is where it would like come home for you I think that attaching the idea of like moral wrongness to privilege is problematic so I recognize that I do not think of privilege that way I'm gonna be honest like I don't mm -hmm. and it doesn't come across that way to me and so maybe this is one of the issues with the way we in society are talking about it. I think you can recognize your privilege without it being tied to being morally wrong and like mm -hmm. morally bad for you as an individual. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's the distinction that we need to do a much better job of making when we're mm -hmm. talking about privilege so that it isn't you're a bad person because you're this, you know, race mm -hmm. or identity because I think that is how a lot of people who disagree with these ideas feel. And so right. maybe check, that's check your where privilege. we can attack oh, it. Oh, you need to check your privilege, right? Like that's something that got thrown around a lot. And that's like, because you have more power and more privilege, your opinion, your well-being, your personhood is valued less. And so you need to like check yourself. God, and I just, I'm with Aaron. I don't, I don't attach that meaning to it. Mm -hmm. I see it as like a good reminder. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. like if you were cussing around somebody that shouldn't have curse words sure. around them and somebody reminded you like, hey, be careful. There are children present. Yeah. Like, I see it like that. Like, you're not a terrible person if you cut. That's my personal mm -hmm. opinion. I know some people do not like <laughs> cussing, but like, I, I see it like that. Like, somebody might be like, wow, this person's judging me and they think I'm a piece of, you know, because I'm cussing. And somebody else might be like, no, I'm just literally reminding you because of like the group you're in, mm -hmm. like, to be careful what you mm -hmm. say. Like, I don't take it. But if somebody, you're right, like, Aaron, that's a really good observation. That is, that's where it hits for Zach. And maybe that's where it's hitting for a lot of people mm -hmm. is feeling like, I don't like, I wanted to compliment Zach. It was illuminating for me when he talks about like how proud he is to be an American and how much he looks up to and idolizes the founders and what it took to make us in, in many people's opinion, the most free country with the best system in existence. I think a lot of people share that view and, and then there are some that don't. And so if you feel like that, like that we have this great thing that needs to be upheld and that there are people on the left or whoever it might be coming for that, coming for our history, trying to tear it down and burn it down and say that it's no good and that it has nothing left to offer us of value. I could see feeling inflamed by that. I could see that feeling inflammatory. And, you know, many people have ancestors that fought in these wars. Like I get, I get it. I do. But I think 
you know, I have no master's in education, but my, my party line is that most problems can be solved in the world with better education. And I just wholeheartedly always think that if we could get a handle on talking about and teaching kids how to talk about some of these things earlier and better than the way we were taught, that would be good. And I get that that would be left to each individual teacher, but think about how many teachers a child has in their lifetime. Yes, they're very formative people in a child's life, but I just, I think if you had it on the table as a thing that they discuss, just like they learn all these other things, I think that we would be better off than mm. waiting until they are, they're going to be taught these things anyway. Mm. They're going to be taught how to feel sure. anyway. And if it's not in a safe curriculum based, non-biased, as much as it could be made to be non-biased way, it's going to be taught by their friends and family and whatever news is playing in their house. Mm -hmm. And that's how we were taught. And that's why a lot of us believe what our friends believe or our parents believe, because that's what we were exposed to. But if you, I mean, nobody has an opinion about, I don't know, geometry. Like there are things that we could teach in a much less morality based. You are good. You are evil. The people that you come from or what they believe in are good or evil. Like if it could be more of a thing that they could form their own opinions about and learn to talk about on their own, I think we would be better off. So I want it taught in schools at an age appropriate level. Maybe there's a panel, you know, maybe there's a panel that outlines like, you know, when you're eight, here's what, here's like breaching this discussion or five. I don't know. Five seems so young. Like I said, you barely have the attention span to like, remember your own like address when you're five. But anyway, like there's a panel made up of radical left wingers and radical right wingers. I know what that's like, you know, just say like opposite ends of the spectrum, right? You have a panel of people that represent different sides of the ideology on this topic and you have them come together rather than like educators, which I'm not knocking educators, but have people who are experts and hold PhDs in this discussion and hold conflicting views, like have them come together and create a curriculum that's like appropriate for different age groups. And it's a continued conversation throughout, you know, K-12 rather than just being like, you know, a module for a week or something like that when you learn about the Civil War. Like maybe it has to be a more like ongoing discussion that's that's comprised of the different viewpoints and encompassing a love for country while also being critical of the institutions that like were used to oppress people. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna like disagree hard on not involving educators in that conversation. Like I think that educators, they're the ones who understand kids, they're the ones who understand how kids learn, right? Like you actually, I think you have to have them involved in okay. like how you teach things, how you design curriculum. But like that aside, that's not really my point. I just, I just like maybe, I mean like maybe like start with the people that are experts on race and history, like start there and have them and then like, and then bring in educators to like, okay, how do we practically go about teaching it rather than having like, I'm trying to get it removed from like a political sphere and have it be, have it be on the academic level of, you know, have Fleming and John McCorder work together to come up with something that they both can like reasonably agree on that suits both sides and then like See, deal with the education to like, how, how is it going to be implemented? See, but I think that's part of the problem because it does politicize it and you're throwing out like, okay, well you have to like represent both sides. There's certain things you can't do that for like slavery, <laughs> you know, there there's maybe like not 
a good side of teaching that, you know, right? Like, I, I don't, I don't mean like defend slavery because like that's that's indefensible. But I mean like, how do we have somebody who who is on the more on the one side of the CRT issue that America is good, the institutions create value, and that the individual has a certain agency over his own life, and also incorporate the ideas that the institutions have been used to oppress people and that, um, you know, white supremacy is a real thing that has existed and, and was predominant in society for hundreds of years. You just said it. Like, it's that simple. You say that it exists. You say that some bad people have done it this way. Like, you've, you've already made it simpler. Like, you don't need somebody to come in this is we're getting into like mm -hmm. all the different books that get right. banned and yeah. like oh no well if you're gonna have How to books that are pro curriculum. this and you have to have books that are pro that like what what was the one that came out like books that are pro the holocaust like whatever it was it was horrible and i feel like that gets like way too political i'm not disagreeing like i agree zach like if if we're having such an argument about how to design the curriculum correctly like maybe we need to approach designing curriculum in a way that we haven't approached before. I'm totally open to that. We can try new things. Yeah, well, that's like one of the reasons why there's been all of these debates on the school board level. There's, I found this like interesting thing. This is from Ballotpedia. There's like been just a huge number of recall efforts for school boards. And it's related to this idea of redesigning curriculum. So between like 2009 and 2020, or I guess 2019, there were between like th 20 to 35 recall efforts in s for school board members um, in, in 2021 the in the country per year. Sorry, per year. So like 21 year, 30 the next year, something like that um, mm. since 2009. In 2021, there were 92 recall efforts. Wow. And as of April this year, there's been 32 since from January to April. This is very much happening and like whatever we can't, we are not experts in designing curriculum, right? Like we don't have the answer of exactly how to teach this in schools other than to say we need to think critically about it and not like stamp on ideas basically. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> there's some very real things happening in the country right now, uh, you know, related to how we're doing this. And the fact that there's been these laws passed that are not super well defined when it's talking about critical race theory or other divisive topics. Yeah. We don't know exactly what that's going to mean. Most of the school districts said before the laws were passed, we don't teach CRT. So what does it mean now that these laws are passed? Mm -hmm. And a few of them are being challenged in court right now. But I'll tell you what it does do. It has a chilling effect on educators who are then afraid of like what they can say and what they can't say. I mean, some of these laws that have been proposed include private rights of action against individual teachers, which means that a parent mm -hmm. could sue a teacher over what they're telling their what? students. And like, that just seems totally not okay to me. So whether we have the answer for this or not, there's ways we're doing it right now that I think are very mm -hmm. unhelpful. There's been a lot of resignations because of that, right? Isn't this a limitation of free speech? It concerns me that we're able to put barricades up about what our children can learn and what teachers can talk to our students about, like that they would never have been exposed to some of these ideas and concepts. It doesn't that I'm surprised that that isn't more incensing. I think Elon Musk should buy the there board of education go. and then he'll allow for all speech. I think that's the answer. My actual nightmare. <laughs> Next week oh, on the reframers. <laughs> but but no, it's a good it's a good question. And and I 
I don't know, Aaron, maybe you can like help clarify the the thing, but I think because it's publicly funded and it's like what we're teaching kids, like the, it's not quite the same as just like, oh, my individual right to free speech. It's like, what are we using our like tax dollars for to educate like our, our kids? And it's like, if I, as a tax paying citizen, am like not happy with what the curriculum is and I, it goes against like my beliefs for what I want my kid to be taught, then like, I don't want it to be taught. Well, I just haven't been in school in a long time, but I, I just think the idea of limiting the topics that can be in conversation in schools when kids are going through as much as they're going through and growing up in this time, it feels really wrong to me to limit what kids are like allowed to learn about and should be exposed to in a safe environment where the, where the goal is exposure and learning to shield them Mm -hmm. from that. It doesn't feel like a shield. I know that some people feel like they're shielding and they're keeping them safe. It feels like wrong and like it's doing kids a disservice. Well, maybe the answer is instead of being vague in in the language, make it hyper-specific in the language. If there's something that you specifically object to, then pass a bill on that because then it leaves less room for people to defend it and say, oh, like this is, we're just talking about like divisive subjects, like divisive topics. And you never define what divisive topics are. you would never be for somebody saying these are the specific things you must or must Yeah, I think we just shouldn't have laws banning subjects to teach. (laughs) No, but I'm saying like if, if Republicans, I mean, this is me being critical of my own side, like if Republicans really feel so strongly that they don't want you know, racism taught, like, right, if, if they're being general and vague in the language to say divisive topics, but that really is code for like being racist or something, then they should, you know, write a bill or not pass bills uh, from from the like the legislative side of things that are so broad, like if you're going to really like have feelings about what the curriculum is like, fine, you should not talk, you cannot talk about race at all in a classroom, and then like, see how people come out and and support that or not and like obviously Holy like moly. that's a stupid th- no i'm i'm saying like i know it just right like me out even the sentence right but then it's it's it paints a very there's no ambiguity like you clearly know what each side is for on that or who's writing the bill is for yeah and i but i think the point is to write them in a vague way on purpose because then you can cherry pick a little bit on like what's right. okay and what's not right so that's another yes. one of the problems Something that I really, that was really just like brought home to me, and I should have known this even before when I was doing research on the school stuff specifically, is just how political a job of being a teacher is. I mean, Mm -hmm. like you just, it's, you don't think of it as being a political job, but in a lot of ways it really is. I mean, teachers are at the center of debates on so many things, particularly in the last two years with COVID and now CRT. Like this is just out of control for teachers. I think it's so unfair to them and I just want to put out there since we all have lots of teachers in our lives. A lot of our friends are teachers. You know, my dad is a teacher. Um, my aunt works in schools. Like it's just everywhere. And just like, thank you for being teachers. Kudos to you. I recognize how <laughs> difficult your job is. You know, this yeah. is not, it's not fair to teachers. 
bring your teacher donuts or a card or reach out to an old teacher on Facebook and let them know how they've impacted your life. That's my challenge to you this week, Reframers, because obviously, unless you have a master's in education, in which case I actually do still want to hear from you because I would actually love to know what you think about all this. But like, please, Reframers, consider reaching out to a teacher in your life that has made a difference. We've done it before. And like we had teachers at our wedding, like it is truly one of the most important jobs on the planet. They're not paid enough. Just tell them you love them and that they made an impact on your life and you will make their year. For sure. That's my takeaway from this. Teachers are hard working sons of guns. We love you guys. I had a friend who I heard he lost his job because of this exact topic we've been discussing this week because he was in the classroom with his, you know, or at home, you know, teaching. He was a social studies teacher. Like basically the school board that he was in was not happy with complaints that he, that parents were sending in and, and kind of like forced him out of his job. So yeah, thank you educators everywhere, because honestly, even though it's a difficult topic, like we're sitting here, but you guys have the actual groundwork of like having to deal with all the kids and like trying to teach it. As always, we're super grateful for each and every one of you for joining us on this ride. Yeah, that was a ride. That was a ride of an episode. Yeah. So thanks thanks for jumping on. Let us know, Reframers, what you want us to talk about next, whether it's a concept or a policy or a current event. We are open for any challenge. As you have seen, we don't even shy away from race. So like, follow, subscribe. We're on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter. We have a beautiful new website. And I just want to remind you, if you've listened, we are so appreciative. Please rate and review us five stars. What's the website that people can find us at, Cass? Good question. You guys can find us at reframerspod.com. Reframerspod. And I just want to thank everybody as as Aaron and Cassie did. But also I want to thank Aaron and Cassie because um, this was a difficult conversation for me to have. Like I, I really spent a lot of time thinking, like actually just like not not reading, not looking up articles, but actually just like thinking in my brain about this topic and also reading and and everything. And I just want to thank you for like bearing with me and challenging me and listening to me, honestly, because it's not something that's just like tax policy. Like it's, it, it, it's really important. Um, and I know I'm not like, I'm not all the way there, but I'm trying to figure it out. So thank you guys both for, for being my hosts and sounding boards. It's means a lot. Yeah, absolutely. The more we talk, the more I realize we're saying in every single episode, like, this is a big one. This is a big one. This is a hot button topic. It all affects people. It affects people in different ways and affects all of our daily lives, people we love and care about. And as always, our goal is to make it okay to talk about that and make it okay to disagree about things. We have to coexist. So we need a healthy dose of respect and open mindedness to do that. And I thank you guys for leading the charge on that. No problem. Okay, friends. Erin's got to go. She's going to a baby shower. No. Wedding shower. <laughs> Wedding shower. I've got an engagement party today. Everybody in the world is getting married. Holy cow. Gotta go get dressed. See you guys later. Thank you for listening to the Reframers Pod. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please rate and review us five stars and subscribe so you can always catch our latest episode. You can also find us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Reframers Pod. And you can email us at reframerspod at gmail.com. 